Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 119, The Son of God 3, Dr. Dustin Smith's Socinian View of Jesus. I hope you enjoyed episode 118 with Mr. Danny Andre Dixon. I got a brief note from him. There was a part in the interview where he kind of implied that Dustin Smith had not addressed certain texts that are interpreted to imply the preexistence of Jesus. And he misspoke. He didn't mean to say that Dr. Smith had not addressed those texts. He just meant to say that he was not convinced by the interpretations that were suggested. So the real place to look is in the debate that's in the book. Each author lays out their view in a whole chapter. Each author responds to each of the other two authors' chapters at some length and critiques their views. So I hope you view these interviews as just an entrance into the real debate which is in the book. Thank you, Mr. Dixon, for that. I appreciate the good spirit in which you argue in the book and in the interview. Dr. Dustin Smith is an instructor at Atlanta Bible College, where he teaches courses in Greek and New Testament studies. He has a Ph.D. in religion from Bethany Divinity School, and he has served on the pastoral staffs of three churches. He's the author of the book Paradoxical Conquering in the Apocalypse of John, as well as several articles on biblical theology. His blog, called Dustin Martyr, covers mainly New Testament studies. You can find it at dustinmartyr.wordpress.com. He's here with us today to talk about his part in the triple-authored book, The Son of God, Three Views of the Identity of Jesus. Dr. Smith, welcome again to the Trinity's podcast. Thanks, Dale. Thanks for having me again. Dr. Smith, in your chapter in this book, you say that you were raised in a conservative, Christian, church-going family. And surely this provided you with beliefs about Jesus that you say you re-examined in your teens and 20s. What was that Christology you were raised with, and how did you come to question it? Well, I don't really know if I had a very definitive or well-thought-out view of Jesus. I was basically raised in the church, uh, I tell people, since I was negative nine months years old. My dad was a pastor uh, in the Church of Christ, and so I've been going to church my entire life. I had actually been involved uh, with the Church of Christ denomination for the first 14 years of my life. But of course, at that age, you're just, you're basically entertained, you're taught a bunch of songs, and you're taught a bunch of Christian ethics, and then some basic things like, there is a God, there is this guy, Jesus, he died for you, he's in heaven right now, you should try to follow his teachings, and the Bible is something important, and you should get baptized. And that was the extent of my, my Christian religious understanding. When I got to high school, I started actually attending a Baptist church with a bunch of my friends from high school. That particular church was a little stronger in teaching the Bible to me, but I still probably didn't have a, def- a clear, definitive understanding of who Jesus is to where I can actually have a reasonable discussion or dialogue with someone uh, regarding Christology. I do remember in particular, I guess I was about 19 years old, we sat down and the youth pastor said, okay, how do we know that Jesus is both God and man? And he would get us to turn to a passage that says Jesus is the Son of God, and he would get us to turn to a passage that says Jesus is the Son of Man. He goes, oh, there you go. And I remember thinking, that doesn't make much sense to me. You just turn to some titles there. 
I remember a particular time when I was coming into contact with some of the details of Trinitarian theology, and I was asking myself, is this really what I've been taught growing up? And I was sitting at uh, the lunch table with one of my friends and one of my professors, and I phoned my youth pastor in front of them, and I asked him the question. I said, hey, do we believe in the Trinity? And he told me on the phone, yes, Dustin, we believe in the Trinity. So I said, okay, thanks. So I hang up the phone and I said, yes, uh, I think I believe in the Trinity. But that was as close as I ever got to believing it, basically because we really weren't taught the ins and outs of the theology growing up. It was just, Jesus was this guy. Uh, he was the son of God and he died and God raised him from the dead. And that was pretty much it. So uh, maybe it's just the churches that I went to and maybe I was just a person of circumstance, but I was not really indoctrinated with the doctrine of the two natures and the specifics of the three distinct persons of the triune Godhead. I just never came into contact with that during my uh, development years. So was your view at that time that just Jesus is God in human form? Yeah, I don't think that I ever had that thought in my mind. I don't remember being taught that. Uh, I remember hearing that um, as I was getting into my theological studies during my undergrad and thinking to myself, okay, well, that's okay, that sounds different or maybe vaguely familiar, but I, I really don't think that that's what I had growing up, at least very clearly to me. I do know as I think about uh, song lyrics that I had growing up that that sort of theology was kind of woven in a lot of the song lyrics, but I didn't know what I was saying when I was singing it. I was just singing along like everyone else, you know, standing around me. So in one sense, you were rethinking your views, but in another sense, you didn't really have fully developed views. And so you were kind of approaching it for the first time with Bible in hand, trying to get to the bottom of what the Bible says about Jesus. Is that right? Yeah, I'd say probably a better way of describing my process, this is around uh, age 18, 19, 20, is that I was formulating my views and the views that I would want to have for myself. I didn't want to just have the views that, you know, my church wanted me to have or the views that, uh, you know, my parents had. I don't even know what those views were, but I wanted to actually have my own views, have my own faith and not ride on the coattails of other people. Dr. Smith, in this book, you argue for and defend what here is called the Socinian Christology. Briefly, what is this view of Christ, and why is it called Socinian in this book? In the book, I actually note that this title, this designation, Socinian, is at the same time helpful and anachronistic. It's helpful because it's used to describe the Christological persuasion of a famous family the Sotsini family in the, uh, in the 1500s and the early 1600s, and their views were influential during the Radical Reformation. Such critical thinkers as uh, Isaac Newton and John Locke and John Milton were influenced by the Socinians. They weren't just some strange guys that were just making a bunch of stuff up. They were taken seriously by a lot of critical thinkers during that time period. And so uh, a lot of people describe this particular theology as the Socinian theology, or Christology because of that particular family and the influence that they had during the Radical Reformation. So it's helpful in describing that. It's anachronistic because those who are persuaded by this particular theology believe that it actually goes back to the writers uh, of the New Testament and the intentions of the writers of, of all the books of the Bible, and this is what God wanted the readers of the Bible to understand. 
in actually getting into the specifics of it, uh, the Socinian uh, Christology basically says that there's one God who is the Heavenly Father, and he had a son, Jesus, who is uh, completely a human being. He is the human Messiah, the Son of God, the Savior, the Redeemer, who was born, but he was born miraculously due to God's power. And so his beginning of existence, beginning of the existence of Jesus, took place in the womb of his mother, in the womb of Mary. So Jesus doesn't exist prior to that in any literal manner. Any sort of uh, existence that he might have has to be chalked up to pre-existence within God's mind and purposes. So the major distinction between this, uh, what is sometimes called conception Christology, is that Jesus is brought into existence at his begetting, at his birth, in the womb of his mother. He is completely human, and uh, he does not possess any literal pre-existence. Dr. Smith, in your main contribution to the book, the reader expects you to jump into some of the favorite Christological passages like John chapter 1 or Philippians chapter 2, but instead you start with Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah, and then you move on to the birth narratives of Matthew and Luke. Why did you approach things from that direction? I'm actually convinced that this view is taught throughout the entire scope of Scripture. I don't think it is helpful or exegetically appropriate to just start proof texting things in Paul or proof texting things in John. It makes sense to be able to have a perspective that can be argued from the entire scope of Scripture. And so what I actually start to do is I start from the Old Testament, and I note that the Hebrew Bible and the early interpreters of the Hebrew Bible saw passages that described a Redeemer figure, a Messiah-type figure, a Davidic royal figure, and I start with there with that, and I start to look at the job description of the Messiah. I start to see how the Hebrew Bible places expectations for this coming Messiah, who's going to deal with evil, he's going to redeem Israel, he's going to establish the kingdom of God on this earth, he's going to reestablish the Davidic dynasty, he's going to sit on the throne of David, and he's going to be, in a sense, uh, the, the person ruling on God's behalf in a, in, a, in a similar manner that Adam was ruling on God's behalf in uh, Genesis chapter 1, uh, verses 27 through 28. Since the Hebrew Bible is something like 77% of the Bible, it makes sense to make a strong argument out of that uh, significant uh, section of Scripture. And then from there, we actually, I just go into to Matthew. It's the first page you would look at if you turn over from Malachi to the New Testament. And you notice you've got this massive birth narrative, which uh, uses this, uh, this term, some people call it the begats, uh, over 40 times to trace the birth of Jesus as a human being. Matthew traces it through the lines of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and, and through all of these different figures, all the way down through Mary. And Jesus is born as, as a human being, with the one exception being that uh, God is the one who creates him. God is the, the father figure. And in that way, Jesus is uh, literally the Son of God in the sense that he can call God his Father in a way that uh, other people can't do. I also see a similar birth narratives section in Luke. You can see this in uh, Luke chapter 1. I also see it in Luke chapter 3. And so I, I, it just makes sense to start from the beginning, to start from the expectations that are established with the Messiah, the promise of the Messiah, and the vocation job description of this Messiah, and then to move from there to the birth of Jesus. I also do that because. 
I feel like other reconstructions of the identity of Jesus don't take the Old Testament seriously and really downplay the birth narratives. But I think the birth narratives establish quite definitively that Jesus was brought into existence at a particular time. And from a literary standpoint, uh, Matthew and Luke are written independently from one another. And so they're both on their own coming to this conclusion that Jesus was begotten in the womb of Mary. So about Matthew and Luke, some readers would look at them and say, well, those two Gospels and also Mark are silent about Jesus existing before he was a human Although uh, it's been argued to the contrary that there's a hint of pre-existence when he says, I have come, but I don't think that's a really strong argument. Anyway, a lot of readers would say, okay, the Synoptic Gospels don't mention pre-existence. That doesn't mean that they're against it. But the way that you look at the birth narratives, you think they point in the direction of Socinian Christology. Can you say a little bit more about that? Sure. If I just Look at Matthew in particular, I can look at the, the very first verse where it talks about the genealogy of Jesus Christ and that he is the son of David and he's the son of Abraham. Well, if you're the son of David, then that means that you are younger than David and that you are part of his line. You're part of the line of humans that can be traced back to David. And of course, if he's the son of Abraham, then he can also be traced to that as well. Now, the son of David also was a messianic title based on Second uh, Samuel 7 in verse 14. We know this from passages in Qumran written before the birth of Jesus where they interpret this messianically. So we know that Jews in the first century were understanding passages this way. Like I said, it just goes on. It talks about it's, you know, Abraham begat Isaac, who begat Jacob, begat Judah. It just goes all the way down from verses one, all the way down to verse 16, where Jesus comes ek Mariam, Greek meaning comes out of Mary. And this demonstrates that Jesus is just a, a lineal human being. Anybody reading any of the birth narratives in Jewish history or any of the genealogies would see that this is just a typical genealogy. You see genealogies like this in Genesis chapter 5. You see it at the beginning of the book of First Chronicles. It's a, a normal Jewish birth narrative. And it's not trying to argue preexistence. You get no indication here that Matthew knows anything of preexistence. He's not arguing this at all. He's arguing that Jesus is literally from the line of Abraham and from David. And you see the same thing from Luke, where he makes the same argument. Both of these writers indicate through uh, the mediation of angels, through these, uh, this, this revelatory dialogue of angels to Mary and Joseph, Matthew writing from the perspective of writing to Joseph and Luke writing from the perspective of writing to Mary. These angels explain that, uh, you know, as, as messengers of God, that, that Jesus is brought into existence. And they use specific Greek words to indicate this, that he was, he was begotten, he was brought into existence. And if you are brought into existence, that means you did not exist prior to your coming into existence. It means you have a, a starting point. You know, like for me, I was born in uh, 1984. That means I did not exist in 1980 or 1970 or 1960. I just wasn't around. And so it just I think that's just a plain reading of these passages. And it makes sense. It actually it fits in with the expectation of the Messiah within the Hebrew Bible. If it had said something radically different, it probably wouldn't have been accepted by its early Jewish readers.
Dr. Smith, many Bible readers will look at Hebrews chapter 1 and Colossians chapter 1 and conclude that both of these chapters straightforwardly teach that the pre-human Jesus made the cosmos or that God made the cosmos through him. But you don't read either passage that way. How do you read them? Well, let's start with Colossians. One of the, the things that early Christians tried to do is they tried to interpret Jesus through the lens of Jewish theology. One aspect of Jewish theology was that God is a good creator and God created everything wisely. And one of the ways that the book of Proverbs tries to allegorize God's wise interaction with the world is to say that he created things through wisdom. And wisdom, uh, the Hebrew word chokmah, is a personified female figure that is placed alongside you know, God's spirit or God's word. It's not a literal figure. It's just a personification of the fact that uh, Jews are trying to emphasize that God had created things very wisely. And so you could see in passages like uh, Proverbs 3.19, where God created things uh, through wisdom. God created things through his understanding. Wisdom there is not a, a literal person. It's just another way of saying God created things through his, his intelligent and good intellect. And everything was ordered wisely, indicating that his creation is good. And so it would make sense for early Christians to see that the fullest expression of God's wisdom was embodied in Jesus. And so we could see a lot of uh, ways in which um, wisdom Christology was used. And it's interesting that that actually shows up in both these passages. You see it both in Colossians and in Hebrews. If we look at this uh, Colossians passage, I can start in verse 15 where it says, uh, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Well, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. That means he's not God. He's someone who's separate from God. God is invisible, and Jesus is the image of this invisible God. Uh, the word for image in Greek is icon, and it's the same word that's used in the Septuagint, Genesis 1.26, where Adam was made in the image of God. And so Colossians here is saying that Jesus um, is understood in the likeness of Adam. Adam was uh, created by God, uh, and it's actually called son of God by Luke in Luke chapter 3. The function of being the image of God was the one who was invested with the authority to rule over God's creation. And we see here that uh, he is called the firstborn of all creation. Now that could mean uh, some sort of preexistence, but the Greek word prototokos is ambiguous. Could mean uh, first in time or it could be first in rank. And one of the interesting things we know from the Psalms, when you look at Psalm 89 verse 27, where God speaks in the Psalm and God says that I will make somebody, my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. And I noticed from that passage in Psalm 89, 27, that the fact that God is going to make somebody the firstborn means that he's not already at the time of the writing of the Psalm in existence, because God is going to make him in the future, and that this firstborn person is defined through the parallelism of the Psalms as the highest of the kings of the earth. So if I understand that firstborn, Greek word prototokos, could mean first in time or first in rank, we can see from Psalm 89, 27, that the psalmist has in mind the first in rank option. And we can see this phrase, firstborn, also used in Hebrews chapter 1 and also used in the book of Revelation. And as we read through uh, this writing here in Colossians, we can get this sense that uh, it's talking about the preeminence of Christ, not his preexistence. The main passage that gets discussed, though, is verse 16, where it says, In him all things were created. And this is actually very subtly, but clearly saying that all things were created with a divine passive that actually indicates that God created them. It doesn't say that Jesus created all things, it says that they were created by God, but they were created in him. And remember, I just cited the passage in Proverbs 3.19, 
where God created all things in wisdom, which actually used um, uh, in the Septuagint of Proverbs 3.19 in the dative case. So all things are made in wisdom or with wisdom. If Colossians is understanding Jesus as the fullest expression of wisdom, then they can say that this creation was made in him, in Christ, as in like everything was made with him in mind, with him in the focus. But the fact that divine passive is used in verse 16, not actually once, but actually twice at the very end, it says that all things have been created, implying that uh, God is the one that's doing it. But at the end of verse 16, all things have been created through him and for him. It doesn't say by him. The divine passive there indicating God is actually the creator that's involved there. But as you move on, and I don't want to spend all the time on this, but in verse 17, where, where he is he is above all things, uh, another ambiguous phrase, propanton in Greek, uh, used only three times in Scripture, and the other two times that it's used in Scripture, in James chapter 5 and in 1 Peter chapter 4, it means, um, I've been telling you this argument, but above all, or at the, uh, in the conclusion of this argument, or the most important thing in this argument is, and then they go on with their argument. So above all things means like the most important thing. It doesn't mean before all things in time. And in him all things hold together in the sense that the resurrected Jesus, being the one that's been empowered by God, uh, is able to sustain things. Verse 18, talk about him being the head of the body, indicates his preeminence, being the head of the church, also his preeminence. He is the archi, the beginning, which also is actually ambiguous. It could also mean ruler. And since we've got plenty of indicators that uh, this is talking about his preeminence, being the head of the body, the ruler, and our uh, identification of firstborn with Psalm 89.27 indicates that the firstborn is the highest of the kings of the earth, also fits with that. And then it goes on and says he's the firstborn of the dead, and God wanted Jesus to have the first place in everything. So uh, I think the passage is trying to argue that Jesus is extremely important, he's preeminent, and of course, since uh, Colossians is written to people that are being tempted by the local synagogue to consider Judaism or to go back to the synagogue and uh, trying to argue about, uh, actually in Colossians chapter two, it talks about uh, angels and the worship of angels. Colossians has to argue to its readers that Jesus is important. Jesus is all you need. You don't need to go back to Judaism. You don't need to go back to the synagogue. You don't need to get involved with the angelic worship. And I think that's what Colossians is saying. So the gist of your reading of Colossians 1 is that the whole passage is about the preeminence and the, the supremacy of the risen and exalted Jesus, and yes. about verse 16, which is the one that kind of sounds like he was the direct creator. You're saying that it is about the Genesis creation, yes, but it was done sort of for him? Is that how you take the first part where it says, in him in most translations? Yeah. Like with, for his sake? It seems that he's, I mean, there's other passages too, uh, like in the book of Wisdom, uh, Wisdom chapter 7 and Wisdom chapter 9, where they talk about wisdom being involved in creation. But wisdom is not a person. Wisdom is, is a personified attribute, trying to em, um, emphasize God's wise interaction with the world. It's very clear that the early Christians would interpret Jesus along the lines of wisdom, in the sense that they thought that Jesus is the fullest expression of God's wisdom in the present. Uh, there are some Jews um, in the book of Baruch that would talk about how, you know, how, how do we know what wisdom is? And some people say, oh, wisdom is Torah. That's how you can find wisdom, or whatever it may be. One of the most popular Jewish answers would be, how do you find wisdom in the first century? Well, you would find it in the law. So if you want God's wisdom, if you want to see God's wisdom, you find it by observing the law. Well, the Christians would say, actually, you interact with God's wisdom by interacting with Christ. 
And he's not just any old guy. I mean, if all things were made through God's wisdom, Jesus right now is the current expression of God's wisdom. So I do think it's, he, he is drawing on those passages in which God creates things through wisdom. But it's the fact that all things were created that's a divine passive. It doesn't say they like he. It doesn't say he created all things. It says that they were created, like in him all things were created. It was created by God, but it was created in him. So God is the creator. In the end, it says they were created uh, through him and for him, like it was for him. Now, see, the through him makes it sound like he existed at that time. Am I hearing you say that? The through him is referring to God's wisdom and not to Jesus yes. properly speaking? By doing it, they're drawing on the through wisdom passages, but he is saying, whether Paul or the author of Colossians, whatever, is saying that, that Jesus now is the fullest expression of wisdom. This actually, this is exactly what James Dunn argues in his commentary on Colossians. Not that that makes it right or whatever, but this is not something I came up with yesterday. It's hard to argue when he says all things, the things in heaven, the things on earth, that that doesn't mean all things and that doesn't mean the Genesis creation. All things has to mean all things. But the main thing is that the divine passive is used twice, indicating that God is the creator, not that he is the creator. In regard to Hebrews chapter 1, uh, it talks about in the first verse that God has spoken through the patriarchs and in the prophets in a lot of different ways in the past. But in these last days, moving things up to speed to the first century, uh, it says that he has spoken us uh, in his son, who's appointed the heir of all things and uh, through whom he has made the ages. Some translations just say the world, but actually it's uh, through whom he's made the ages. And uh, I argue that this also is implied uh, with some wisdom Christology, the understanding of, of divine wisdom and how God made things through wisdom. In verse 3, there is a very rare Greek word, apavgasma, which actually uh, shows up in uh, wisdom, the book of wisdom, chapter 7, in a reference to Lady Wisdom, to the personification of God's wise interaction with the world. And talks about how this, it's, she's a mirror and she imitates God and she shows us what it's like. But here we see it's not this personification of God. It's actually the human being, Jesus, that is the radiance of God's glory, the character of, of his nature. Um, the character there in verse 3 uh, is actually a stamp. And a stamp, by definition, is an imprinted copy that is brought into existence at the time that the original imprinter of the stamp places it. So it's not an exact copy. It's an imprint of it, but it's created by the original and of course, he sits down at the right hand of the majesty on high at the end of verse 3. This is a drawing on Psalm 110, verse 1, where the majesty on high is obviously God and him sitting at God's right hand. And no one sits at someone's right hand if they are equals. They sit at, uh, the right-hand person is a, an exalted status, but it's a status of subordination. And uh, Psalm 110.1 is, uh, is drawn on heavily throughout the book of Hebrews. So I argue again that the author of Hebrews uh, is drawing on wisdom concepts in the first uh, few verses to identify Jesus. 
the argument there is that, hey, he's better than angels, which by the way, if he was Yahweh, if he was the creator God, you wouldn't have to argue that Yahweh is better than angels. You would just say he's Yahweh, and that's the end of the argument. Mm-hmm. So in verse five, he says, uh, you know, he draws on two passages. He draws on 2 Samuel 7, verse 14, and Psalm 2, 7, both of which uh, are messianic passages that actually link Son of God, the title Son of God, with the Messiah. But it implies also that he is, he is God's son. These passages are used in reference to his birth. Uh, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Um, as in today I have become your father, today I have brought you into existence. And of course he uh, puts it together with uh, 2 Samuel 7, I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. The future tense of that language implying that God was not yet his father at the writing of 2 Samuel 7 and Jesus was not yet the son. So because Jesus was not brought into existence there. And so just as we see the context there of what he is saying about the son, we can a little bit understand better the first verse, the first two verses, in which it was uh, through the son that he has made the ages. And since I have picked up the hints that uh, he is using wisdom Christology and he's drawing on the wisdom traditions that are used in the book of wisdom, chapter seven, um, we see something similar to what we saw in Colossians in that the personified attribute of God, God's uh, wisdom, God's uh, wise attribute in working through the world is being understood now as Jesus in the present by Christians. And so since verse two says, uh, through whom uh, he has made the ages, this is actually talking about both ages, but actually the context of this is, uh, it's clarified in chapter two and verse five, in which it talks about the world to come concerning which we are speaking. Mm-hmm. So we're talking about uh, you know, the age of the kingdom of God, uh, we're talking about uh, the ages to come that are involved with the Messiah. There's an interesting passage in Isaiah 51 in which God is going to put the words in the mouth of another person. Yahweh puts the words in the mouth of another person in Isaiah 55 to plant the heavens and the earth. And uh, this passage will become uh, important because the more dicey passage in Hebrews 1 deals with verse 10, 11, and 12, where the son is being referenced, but the passage is drawing from Psalm 102 in the Septuagint, which is a, it's, it's a complicated passage because in the, in the Hebrew text, the Hebrew text was originally referring to the psalmist and Yahweh having a discussion. But when it got translated in the Septuagint, we could see if you, uh, you would have to take the, uh, um, the Hebrew text and place it alongside the, um, the Septuagint and look at the differences and look at the, uh, the changes that the Septuagint made. And what the Septuagint does is it reads the passage messianically, and it also reads it eschatologically, likely being influenced by reading Isaiah 51, which I talked about how God was going to place the words in the mouth of another person to found the new heavens and the new earth. And so the Septuagint of Psalm 102 uh, actually changes some of the Hebrew text and makes the, uh, some of the verbs into future tense verbs, saying that these are things that are going to happen. They're going to happen in the future. And we can't spend a lot of time on it there, but it seems that the, the, the laying of the foundation of the earth and the heavens being the works of the hands in the eyes of the, uh, the writer of the Septuagint uh, do not refer to the Genesis creation, but refer to the new creation. And like I said, if, if he is drawing on Isaiah 51, that is confirmed, but we don't actually need that since Hebrews chapter two and verse five makes it very clear that it's about the world to come that he is speaking. So it's likely that the creation that's being depicted in Hebrews chapter one, verses 10 through 12, is a reference to the new creation that the empowered Messiah is able to plant and to establish and to work. 
Uh, this would fit in with what we saw in uh, chapter 1, verse 2, that uh, the Son is the one through whom that, uh, that the ages were created, drawing on those wisdom passages. Uh, it's complex, and it's not something that uh, it's easy to, to spit out, but I think that's what the author of Hebrews is actually trying to convey. response to your chapter, Dr. Irons strongly objects to your Christology. He calls it philanthropism, which is the view that Jesus is just a man. And he points out that this Christology has long been unpopular with traditional, non-theologically liberal Christians. How do you answer the mere man objection? And what do you make of the relative unpopularity of this Christology? Well, my understanding is that uh, the Hebrew Bible insists that the Messiah has to be a member of the human race. Uh, I try to detail this within my argument time and time again that uh, this person was going to be a descendant of Abraham. He's a descendant of Judah. He's of the line of David. According to Deuteronomy 18.18, he is a prophet from among the Israelites. Uh, And so the person to fit that has to be a human being. He can't be an angel. He can't be God. He has to be a human being. He has to be a man. We see passages like Acts chapter 2, the first major speech by Peter in the book of Acts, where he talks about Jesus. This is in Acts chapter 2, verse 22. He says, Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to the cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again. The point in this passage is that Jesus is a human being. He's the Messiah. God worked miracles and wonders and signs through him. He was killed according to God's plans and purposes, but God woke him up from the dead. God raised him from the dead. We also see that the synoptic gospels called Jesus a human being uh, quite often. But uh, most interestingly, I argue this in my essays in the book, is that the gospel of John calls Jesus a human being more than Matthew, Mark, and Luke combined. And so I'm not just making this up. I'm getting this from the expectation of the job description of the Messiah from the Hebrew Bible. I'm seeing this in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John. I'm seeing this in Acts. Paul calls Jesus a human being. In Romans chapter 5, we see uh, uh, Paul through the mouth of uh, Luke calls Jesus a human being. In Acts chapter 17, 31, we see in 1 Timothy 2, 5, that God wants everyone to know or come to the knowledge of the truth, that there's one God and one mediator between God and humans, the, uh, the human Messiah, Jesus, the man Messiah, Jesus. And uh, it's, just, it's just pretty clear. I, just, I see it all over the place. It's not a liberal perspective. I'm trying to be uh, as honest with what the biblical evidence is trying to convey time and time again. And why people don't see this? Well, I, I think it's hard for people t- to break away from what they've been taught growing up. Sometimes churches that try to keep a good stronghold on the theology and the beliefs of the members of their congregations, they don't encourage free thinking. Uh, They don't encourage people to ask critical questions. And uh, quite frankly, most Christians really don't read the Bible for themselves. They just go to church and 
And it's unfortunate, but many Christians just have their pastor tell them what to believe and what to do. And there's not a lot of people out there reading for themselves. And so I think if more people did this, they would actually see these scriptures and they would say, hey, this doesn't square easily with one of the popular views. And uh, they would start asking some critical questions. But uh, there are a lot of scholars. There have been many dissenters of incarnational theology and many dissenters of Trinitarian theology uh, over the last 1,700 years. So this is not something that's new. Dr. Smith, mainstream Christian theology has long emphasized that Jesus must have a divine nature. How else, they argue, can Jesus be called divine names like Lord? Surely, they argue, unless he is divine, he can neither forgive sins nor atone for the sins of all humanity by his death. Again, how can Jesus be worthy of worship if he's not divine, but is just one of God's creatures like you and me? I think this designation of divine that gets thrown around sometimes is used uncritically. I'm not exactly sure what divine means or what divine entails. I know what they mean by it. I think that they mean that Jesus is the second person of the Trinity, and so that Jesus must have a God nature and a human nature. Unfortunately, that creates problems because Jesus then has two subconsciouses, he has two wills. It's like he's, he's, he's two persons. And of course, different people and different theologians nuance this different way. Some people think that he has a God nature and he's just got, you know, humanity wrapped around him. Some people think he's 100% God, 100% man. And that basically makes two persons. This actually creates many problems. I think one of the things that uh, gets ignored uh, often in these discussions is the fact that uh, Jewish theology made very clear that it's possible for the agent to represent the one who sent him. The principle of agency is extremely important. We see it uh, used in the Hebrew Bible. We see it in the New Testament. This is something that was understood very clearly with the, uh, the perspective of a, shil- a shiliach, uh, someone who is sent, or an apostle, someone who uh, is sent their commission, and they're given the authority and privileges, and sometimes even the titles of the person who sent them. And so Jesus can forgive sins if God invests the authority in him to forgive sins. The argument that, oh, Jesus forgives sins, therefore he must be God, that falls on its face because we see other people in the Bible forgiving sins. We see actually Jesus, after his resurrection in the Gospel of John, allows for the apostles to forgive sins. We also have in Qumran, we have a Jew that's forgiving sins. No one thought that these people were God. So that argument, I don't think, is used very critically. In regard to titles, uh, Lord is a flexible title. Uh, uh, Jesus is called Lord in the New Testament, but it's likely a Lord derived off the understanding of the second Lord in Psalm 110.1, where you have Yahweh speaking to a different Lord, a Hebrew word, Adoni. This particular Lord, used in 195 occurrences in the Hebrew Bible, is someone who is not God in all of those occurrences, someone who is an exalted human being. Abraham is called the same word for Lord. David is called this word for Lord. No one thought that they were God, but that title is just used um, kind of uncritically in circles. When it's used in Paul, uh, it's actually uh, most likely being used polemically because the common Lord that most people worshipped in the first century in the Roman world would be the emperor, would be Caesar, or from Paul's perspective, would be the emperor Nero. So all those things, I think, have to be taken into account. How can he atone for the sins of humanity? He could do it if God allows him to do it. And if, in fact, the entire argument of Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21, is that uh, the second Adam has to be the one that dies for the sins of the world. It Actually, the argument there by Paul very clearly is that Jesus has to be a human being in order to deal with the sins of the world, that reconciliation 
and justification comes through a man, through a human being. So it's actually Paul's argument that Jesus has to be a human being, not that he has to be something else or divine or God or something like that. I would uh, suggest people look very closely at that argument in Romans 5, 12 through 21. In regard to the issue of worship, in our culture today, uh, you only worship God and anyone else that's being worshiped is understood as uh, receiving worship illegitimately. But in the Jewish world and in the first century world, there are a lot of human beings that are worshiped. We know uh, even from the Hebrew Bible that uh, Yahweh and David can be worshiped uh, sharing the same verb uh, in a passage like uh, 1 Chronicles uh, 2920. The Greek verb proskuneo, someone just does a basic word study of it, they'll notice that a lot of people are worshiped. Jesus actually says that Christians are gonna be worshiped in Revelation chapter three and verse nine. So Jesus authorized the worship of human beings. So it's okay for that to happen if they are allowed to receive such worship. And one of the things that we notice in Acts chapter two, verse 36, is that uh, God has made Jesus both Lord and Christ. So Jesus wasn't originally Lord. God had made him the Lord. God had made him the Christ, the anointed king of the kingdom of God. And so if, if, if God has given these titles to Jesus, then that's okay. And one of the things we do notice as in the climax of this famous passage in Philippians, uh, Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11, is that God has given a name to Jesus, which is above every name, that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So the fact that Jesus has this title is because God gave it to him, not that he had it originally, and this, uh, the confession of Jesus Christ being Lord is to the ultimate glory of God the Father. And so I think all of these aspects need to be taken into consideration if we wanna take the evidence seriously, if we wanna look at all the evidence, and if we don't wanna just cut our corners when we're trying to assess what these uh, passages were trying to convey in their original contexts. Dr. Smith, this change in your understanding of Jesus that we've been talking about, how has this affected your spiritual life? I think we get the sense in Scripture that Jesus is supposed to be the example for believers. He is someone that the author of Hebrews says has been tempted in all points and yet was without sin. The author of Hebrews also says that Jesus, because he has partaken uh, of humanity in the sense that he knows what it was like. He, he, he dealt with all of these sins and yet he always did the will of the Father and he died and he was raised from the dead, that he can relate to us. And Jesus is always given as an example. Um, Philippians 2, since we've already referred to it, says that in uh, chapter 2 and verse 5 that we need to have this attitude among ourselves, which was also in Messiah Jesus. And Jesus is the one that uh, didn't come to be served, but to serve other people and to give his life a ransom for many. That's in Mark chapter 10. And so Jesus gives us the example that we're supposed to follow, uh, placing other people's needs above ourselves. And basically, the, the Christology of Jesus affects your Christian living. And uh, the Christology of Jesus is something that uh, other writers of the New Testament use in order to encourage good Christian ethics 
in order to encourage uh, following Jesus, in order to encourage looking at Jesus as the pioneer of their faith, to draw on another passage uh, from Hebrews. I think if Jesus is divine, or whatever that means, or if he is God, or if he's an angel, I can't relate to that. I can't follow in those footsteps. I think the fact that uh, Jesus uh, being a human being demonstrates that, you know what, if we rely on God, and if we follow him, we can overcome in this world, and we can be successful, and we can triumph in this age, because Jesus has accomplished that. Dr. Smith, thank you for talking with us. Sure, Dale. Thanks for having me. The book, again, is called The Son of God, Three Views of the Identity of Jesus. It's now available on Amazon.com. And as always, if you click through a link or the Amazon search bar at trinities.org, we'll get a small cut, and it doesn't at all raise your price. Today's thinking music has been the track, You're Right, But I'm Me, by Dr. Turtle. I got another note this week alerting me to some problems with downloading the podcast episodes using iTunes or other Apple-related products. I'm sorry about that, folks. I suspect that the issue is that I need to shell out for more expensive hosting, and uh, I'm looking into options for doing that in the new year, and I'll let you know when that happens. For now, you can definitely get every episode on YouTube, and you should be able to always get it if you come to the website and just look at the blog post. Thanks for listening, and thanks so much for your patience on that. listening. We'll see you online at trinities.org. Till next time, don't forget to love God with all your mind.